0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 261, The Raid on Augusta. In the last couple of episodes, I've covered the loss of a second Southern American army, this time at Camden, where General Cornwallis easily crushed a larger force under General Horatio Gates. Following that loss, British forces focused on the last few Patriot militia armies that were still causing trouble in South Carolina, pushing most of them further west into or beyond the mountains. This decisive British victory seemed to secure South Carolina for British rule, making it the second colony after Georgia to return to crown authority by the fall of 1780. A British control, however, always seemed to prove far more fluid than officials would have liked. Recall that the British had captured Georgia in late 1778 when a relatively small force captured the town of Savannah. The British attempted to secure the entire colony by setting up an outpost in Augusta, but quickly determined that a force that far inland only made itself a tempting target for Patriot militia attacks. British control over Georgia by the spring of 1779 was essentially limited to the greater Savannah area. Augusta was a frontier village well inland and farther up the Savannah River from the town of Savannah. It was one of the original five towns that had been established in the 1730s by James Oglethorpe when he first organized the Georgia colony. He named the town, after the Princess of Wales, Augusta of Sax-Gotha. At the time, she was the daughter-in-law of King George II and would soon become the mother of the future King George III. Originally, the town of Augusta was well within Creek territory and was established as a trading community with the local tribes. During the war, though, Britain wanted to do whatever it could to re-establish control over the entire colony. The army returned governor James Wright to Savannah to return civilian control to the colony. The British army managed to mount a raid into South Carolina in 1779 that nearly captured Charleston. Then managed to survive a joint attack by continental and French forces that fall. Now after fending off that attack, the British as I said didn't really venture much outside of Savannah. Large numbers of patriot forces in the west and just over the river in South Carolina made venturing out too much of a risk for the British soldiers. A Patriot state government continued to meet in Augusta and claimed control of Georgia. In early 1780, the Patriots proclaimed Augusta to be the seat of government for the colony. The relatively small British garrison at Savannah could only watch these events unfold from Savannah. The British could not risk spreading their forces too thinly, to control more than the area that they already controlled, and they left Augusta under Patriot control. Now, Then came the British capture of Charleston in May of 1780, and that really changed everything. Suddenly, the threat of continental attacks from South Carolina disappeared. British officials in Savannah decided it was time to retake Augusta and establish real control over the entire colony once again the task of subduing Augusta fell to Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Burntfoot Brown. I've mentioned Colonel Brown in a number of earlier episodes. He was the son of a wealthy English merchant. His family could trace its ancestry back to minor nobility, but Brown's branch of the family had lost that title to an older sibling generations earlier. As a young man in his twenties, Brown used his father's money to recruit more than 70 indentured servants. In late 1774, he brought this group to Georgia where he established a new community called Brownsboro on a large tract of land of more than 5,000 acres just north of Augusta. Given the young man's wealth, Governor Wright made Brown the magistrate for the region. When the war broke out a few months later, both sides started essentially trying to recruit Brown for their side. In the summer of 1775, Shortly after word arrived of the battles of Lexington and Concord, and less than a year after Brown's arrival in Georgia, the local Sons of Liberty attempted to coerce him into joining the local Patriot cause. Brown refused, saying he would never take up arms against his own country. A mob then seized Brown and tortured him, trying to get him to pledge his support to the Patriot cause. Various accounts say that his attackers partially scalped him, tarred and feathered him and burned off the bottom of his feet. Eventually, Brown succumbed to the torture and pledged his support. Of course, as soon as he escaped his captors, Brown recanted his pledge and began organizing Loyalists in the backcountry. He first fled to South Carolina, but after being pursued by patriots there, he moved further west, living among the Creek and Cherokee Indians. Later, he made his way to St. Augustine, where he worked with the East Florida governor, Patrick Tonin, to establish a regiment of Loyalist Rangers. By early 1776, Brown had a commission as a lieutenant colonel. He spent the next couple of years leading his Rangers and Indian allies against the Patriots in a series of border skirmishes between Georgia and East Florida. The border fighting proved relatively inconclusive, but prevented the Patriots from capturing the much smaller colony of East Florida. Brown joined with the larger force that ended up capturing Savannah at the end of 1778. His rangers then attempted to reclaim the area around Augusta, which included Brown's home. The fighting included the Battle of Briar Creek, which I covered back in episode 213. As I've already said, the fighting between the Patriots and Loyalists in this region was pretty savage and merciless. Brown was part of that. He showed his ability and bravery as a partisan fighter, being wounded several times, but always avoiding capture. In 1779, shortly after the capture of Savannah, Brown received a more formal commission as a lieutenant colonel of his provincial regiment, now called the King's Rangers. Brown also received a commission that same year as superintendent of Indians for the Creek and Cherokee tribes. His rangers fought in the defense of Savannah during the siege that took place in 1779. When General Henry Clinton brought his larger army south with the intent of recapturing Charleston, South Carolina, he deployed part of his force, about 1,400 soldiers under General James Patterson, to Savannah. General Patterson's orders were to secure Augusta. But before Patterson could begin his campaign, he received orders from Clinton to move north, and assist with the attack on Charleston. Clinton was calling in all available forces to ensure the success of his siege at Charleston. Patterson's departure only left a relatively small garrison at Savannah, which included Colonel Brown and his king's rangers. At that time, it was about the same number that had been unable to take Augusta for over a year. But, as I said, when Charleston fell in May of 1780, there was no longer any Patriot threat from South Carolina that endangered a British expedition from Savannah to Augusta. Most of the Patriot militia that had been guarding Augusta had moved into South Carolina to move the fight there. It's estimated that there were probably less than 50 Patriot militia left behind to defend Augusta. General Clinton approved Colonel Brown's desired offensive to retake the city. Brown left Savannah with his king's rangers and supplemented by other provincial units. His force totaled about 300 men. Brown moved slowly, reconnoitering carefully to avoid any ambushes. He reached Augusta in early June after about a week's ride. When he arrived, Brown met no resistance. The few unrepentant patriots had fled the region, Many local militia who had backed the Patriots now offered their services to Brown's Loyalists, hoping to avoid punishment for their former treason. Brown did not take on these suspect soldiers, but he did offer them the same terms that Clinton had offered the South Carolina militia. The men could turn in their weapons and return home on parole, on the promise that they would never again take up arms against the Crown. So, the British took possession of Augusta without a shot fired. Brown was not content to sit in a small garrison town. He knew that securing the countryside was the key to a more permanent end of the rebellion. He deployed a company of his king's rangers to occupy Fort Rutledge, a small outpost that the South Carolina militia had built deeper into Cherokee land. Brown gave instructions not to occupy the fort, but to destroy it. He did not want to leave a defensive position that the enemy might reoccupy, At the same time, he wanted to assure his Cherokee allies that he would respect their land claims. Brown followed up on the destruction of Fort Rutledge by removing frontier families who had illegally squatted on Cherokee lands. As the British Army secured South Carolina over the summer of 1780, Augusta became the southwesternmost outpost in a line of outposts designed to cover the interior of both colonies. Augusta was about 50 miles south of the main outpost at Fort 96 in South Carolina. Now, Brown and Augusta worked with Colonel Nisbet Balfour at Fort 96 to get approval to build a defensible fort at Augusta. By late June, Clinton had departed for New York, and General Cornwallis became the new commander in the Southern Theater. So, Balfour wrote to Cornwallis asking for approval to build the fort at Augusta. Cornwallis wrote back a few days later, denying the request. he allowed for the construction of fieldworks to house the garrison, but no new permanent redoubts or earthworks at either Augusta or Fort 96. Cornwallis didn't give any reasons for his refusal. Part of it may have been the costs that would have been incurred. Cornwallis was also trying to spread the perception, at this time, that the British had restored peace to the region and that the war was over. Law and order had returned. Building a fort would run against this narrative. Cornwallis did give some insight into his general thinking when he wrote to Georgia Governor Wright about this same time. He said, So long as we are in possession of the whole power and force of South Carolina, the province of Georgia has the most ample and satisfactory protection by maintaining a post at Savannah and another at Augusta nor can I think myself justified in incurring any further expense on the Army accounts for the protection of Georgia. In other words, if South Carolina was secure, then Georgia had nothing to worry about. Instead, Cornwallis wanted to focus his military resources on the front lines. So, complying with these orders, Brown did not build any major defenses, only a small stockade near the river named Fort Grierson named for a Loyalist colonel from the region. This was really only a storehouse for supplies. It wasn't designed to be large enough to house the garrison or provide any real defense for Augusta. Over the next couple of months, the British plan seemed to be working. Locals turned out to join up with the Loyalist militia. Even former patriots began to accept British rule and comply with enlistment requests. Brown proclaimed that he would keep the peace and promised immediate hanging to any lawless elements who dared disturb the king's peace by attacking or raiding any plantations. Law and order, however, was easy to proclaim but hard to enforce. Since Brown had disarmed many of the former patriots, criminals began to proclaim themselves loyalists and attack these unarmed plantations in the king's name. Brown noted that these men were cattle rustlers and horse thieves, They were criminals who would be prosecuted and hanged if caught, but catching them was not that easy. Highway robberies along the route between Savannah and Augusta became commonplace. Governor Wright requested that Cornwallis send cavalry to run down these criminals, but Cornwallis took the perspective that he was still fighting a real war in South Carolina. Georgia was going to have to take care of its own law enforcement. Cornwallis had left only about 800 soldiers in all of Georgia and the majority of these were in Savannah. Most of the rest made up the garrison at Augusta. There were almost no regulars among them. Most, aside from Brown's King's Rangers, were provincials from New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania, supplemented by a few Hessian companies. The military command at Augusta was placed under the larger military command at Fort 96 in South Carolina, meaning that the British soldiers at Augusta could be recalled to fight in South Carolina as needed. After a few weeks, Georgia's Governor Wright grew concerned about the former rebels who were under parole in Georgia. He was beginning to fear that they might rise up again. Following the lead of General Clinton in South Carolina, Wright tried to crack down on the parolees, issuing an order in July which denied the former rebels the right to keep and bear arms or hold any government office. They could be brought before a magistrate at any time and forced to swear allegiance to the crown and could be required to post bond for continued good behavior. Failure to comply meant imprisonment or impressment into the British Navy. Wright, however, saw that when officials in South Carolina tried to impose unacceptable conditions on the parolees, it only motivated them to take up arms and begin fighting again. So, Wright was hesitant to enforce his proclamation in the western parts of Georgia. He was still hoping that Cornwallis Wallace might send reinforcements to help him enforce these proclamations with muskets and bayonets. Colonel Brown was not convinced that hesitating and simply hoping the quiet would continue was the best plan. He had about 300 men at Augusta, but there were around five or 600 parolees in the surrounding area and some of these men had already taken up arms again under Elisha Clark, the Georgia Patriot who was engaged in guerrilla fighting at this point in South Carolina. Absent any orders, though, there was little Brown could do. Instead, Brown focused on holding talks with the Creek and Cherokee warriors. The natives would provide hundreds of warriors if needed. Brown convinced many of them that the British would respect the native land claims while the Patriots clearly had not. In September, Brown was meeting with several war chiefs in Augusta when he received word that his garrison was under attack. Colonel Elijah Clark had recruited a force of between five and 600 partisans to retake the region. At about 9 a.m. on September 14, 1780, Brown launched a three-pronged attack against the Loyalist garrison at Augusta. Brown first received word that an Indian camp just outside of town was under attack by the rebels. These were the families of the Creek warriors with whom Brown had been trying to negotiate a military alliance. So Brown quickly moved his rangers along with several field artillery pieces to relieve the attack. He also left a detachment at McKay's trading post where he feared the rebels might try to raid the supplies and gifts that he had there for the Indians. By the time Brown's rangers reached the Indian encampment, the threat there had faded. But he learned that another rebel column had entered Augusta and were now threatening his rear. So, Brown turned around his men and made it back to McKay's trading post, where the small detachment was already fighting off a rebel attack. The combined relief force of rangers and Creek warriors drove off the raiders. Since the trading post offered the best defensible ground, the Loyalists and Creek dug in there, while the rebels returned to Augusta to plunder the town. Brown's men found themselves under siege for three days. And while the ground there was defensible, the defenders found themselves without any access to water. They quickly became dehydrated and desperate. There are accounts of men drinking their own urine. The majority of the force consisted of two hundred and fifty Creek warriors. Another fifty Cherokee managed to join the defenders during the siege by swimming across the Savannah River and slipping through enemy lines. A word reached Fort 96 that the siege of Augusta was happening, but since the fort was 50 miles away, it took nearly two days for the messages to reach them and two more days for reinforcements to arrive. On September 18th, four days after the attack began, reinforcements from 96 reached the besieged loyalists. At that point, Clark's patriots saw the reinforcements on the other side of the Savannah River and opted to retreat rather than take on the superior force. During that retreat, Brown's men attempted to march out and attack the retreating force. They managed to capture a few prisoners, one of whom they hanged immediately. But the defenders were so exhausted and dehydrated after three days and nights of fighting that they could not really mount much of a pursuit. The relief force managed to capture more of the retreating prisoners. Thirteen of those captured were found to be men who had broken the parole and were also hanged. Several prisoners that fell into the hands of the Cherokee were tortured to death. The relief force was planning to return to Fort 96 when they learned that Clark's Patriots had stopped their fight only a few miles upriver and were just planning another attack on Augusta as soon as the relief force left. Instead, the Loyalists launched another offensive to capture Clark's partisans. Rather than engage a superior force, many of whom were native warriors, the Patriots continued to move up the Savannah River until they eventually fled into the mountains of western North Carolina, at which point the main Loyalist force did return to 96. The reaction to the American raid on Augusta was swift and severe. Brown and his Loyalists and the Indians burned the plantations of any patriots in the area. They seized other personal property. The wives and children of patriots were driven from their lands and forced to join their men, who were mostly by this time in western North Carolina. Loyalists burned over a 100 farms. They also arrested 68 men who were accused of joining Clark during the attacks. Most of these men claimed they had been forced to join and were released after taking an oath of allegiance. The remaining 23 were sent to Charleston to join prisoners of war being held there. Following the attack, Brown's rangers, with the aid of slave labor, built proper fortifications to defend against any future attacks. The British held control of the region, but the return of the king's peace and law and order remained elusive. Next week, we're going to head up to the Ohio Valley George Rogers Clark and his militia do battle with Native Americans at Peekaway. This episode is supported by the food delivery service Factor. It's spring now and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. If my voice sounds a bit different in this after show, my microphone died just after I recorded the main episode, so I had to scramble and get a new microphone. It almost prevented me from getting this episode out on time. But as I record this after show, just hours before my scheduled release time, I think I'm going to make it. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert's Morris Circle supporters Lee Siam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. Welcome also to Michael Reed, who joined as a standard bearer last month, and to the new folks at the Minuteman level, Will Reasoner. Deborah Robinson, and Alex Robb. Thanks also to Tim Fargo, Brenda Richmond, and Mia Martinez for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Uh, Many of you received invitations that I sent out to everyone on my mailing list for our American Revolution holiday party taking place this week in Mount Holly, New Jersey. If you want to keep up to date on all live events related to the American Revolution podcast, please make sure you join my mailing list at MailChimp There are links to join on my website and blog. The Augusta raid that I discussed this week was yet another example for the British that securing territory was never really a done deal. Cornwallis was well on his way to securing South Carolina and moving north, but even after defeating several armies, his conquered territories remained subject to attack, as was the case in Georgia this week the Loyalists and their Indian allies tried to push the attackers as far away as possible, way back over the mountains into the western lands. But of course, there can always be unintended consequences. Pushing the war back over the mountains caused the western settlers, known as the Mountain Men, who realized that they had to take the war to the British or the British were going to bring the war to them. So this push west led to an assembly of patriot militia that we'll see in a few weeks will lead to the destruction of the Loyalists at King's Mountain. The action at Augusta also emphasized how the British made use of native tribes to help their cause. And I've seen this spun both ways. The pro-British spin, of course, is that the Brits are good guys and that things would have gone much better for the American Indians had the British remained in power. The pro-American spin is that the British cynically tried to pit different groups against each other as part of the game of remaining in charge. I'm going to talk more about the Native American roles in 1780 in my next episode, so we'll all have to wait for that one. My book recommendation this week is called Georgia and the Revolution by Ronald Killian and Charles Walker. This is more a general book about the role Georgia played in the American Revolution. Uh, Although there is a short narrative, the bulk of this book is a compilation of original documents from the era. As such, it's a great book for reference and research, not so much for leisurely reading. It was published in 1975, and I don't think there's been a second printing, but used copies are cheap, and there is an online version of the book available on archive.org. The book in its entirety is only a little over 200 pages, and only a third of that is narrative It's really great because it contains so many original documents, though, from the era relating to Georgia and the Revolution that I love it for just that reason. The main author is a journalist who was originally from Georgia. If you're looking for a good reference book that focuses on Georgia's role in the war, look for this book, Georgia and the Revolution. My online recommendation is a public domain book called Recollections of a Georgia Loyalist by Elizabeth Lichtenstein Johnson. She was actually a young girl from a Loyalist family in Georgia during the war. She wrote down her story years later, in 1830s, for her grandchildren. Her descendants published it as a book in 1901. So, as I said, it's an interesting look at the war in Georgia from someone who lived through the events in question. The book is available on archive.org, and I've, of course, included a link on my blog and website. My question this week asks, In almost every circumstance, the title, The United States of America, refers to the country as it is used today. Almost everyone I encounter believes the country started in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and commonly is celebrated as such. But I contend that the country started in 1789, and from the period between 1783 and 1789 were more like 13 independent countries rather than one country calling itself United States of America. If one could go back to 1785, for example, and ask an individual from any of the 13 former colonies, what country do you live in, would any of them have answered the United States of America? Aren't the Articles of Confederation more like an agreement between independent countries rather than states forming a country? Was there any authority, including the Congress of the Confederation, that held any power over the 13 sovereign states, or were they really 13 sovereign states? All right, well, that's a long question, and actually a lot of questions in there, so we'll try to get to it. Now, we used July 4th, 1776, as the nation's birth date, because that was the date that was written on the document that declared our independence from Britain. But you are correct that the new states did not see themselves as a single nation. The term United States does appear in the Declaration, but only to declare that these separate 13 states were united in their opposition to further British rule. People would refer to the U.S. in the plural, these United States, not the United States. Now, after the Declaration was passed in 1776, it would be another five years before the states even adopted a governing document, the Articles of Confederation the Articles did establish some coordination, but gave the Congress very little authority to act without the approval of the various state governments. I would argue that even the adoption of the Constitution did not change that. The Constitution gave the new federal government a bit more authority than the Confederation Congress and partially weighed relative power based on population. It still left the bulk of the governmental power with the states. People still tended to think during the constitutional era that they were citizens of their states, not as citizens of a single nation, the United States, any more than we think that we are citizens of the United Nations. The notion that the U.S. was a single nation is something that evolved over time, many decades. Prior to the Civil War, even, most Americans still thought of themselves as citizens of their home state, not necessarily as Americans. Now, those attitudes were changing as we get closer to the Civil War. Senator Daniel Webster exemplified the changing attitudes when he began his speech during the debates on what would become the Compromise of 1850 by saying, quote, I wish to speak today not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American. It really was the Civil War that solidified the view that the states had become one nation indivisible. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me next time for another American Revolution podcast.